Well, good morning, and welcome to Kamiki Christian. My name is Jerry. I'm one of the pastors. I want to encourage you, if, uh, if you haven't done so already, uh, to open your Bible, if you brought one with you, or your app on your phone, whatever is convenient, to Luke, the fourth chapter. We'll be starting in verse number one today. That's Luke chapter four, beginning in verse one. Before we do, though, just a quick uh, little survey. Uh, anybody here uh, make any New Year's resolutions? Anybody? Okay, not, okay, a couple of people willing to admit it. How you doing right now? No, I don't. It's all right. Okay. I, I, I heard about a guy that was trying to lose weight. That was his uh, New Year's resolution. He realized that he needed to change some things. He needed to set up some healthy boundaries for himself because he had this tendency as he drove to work every day to pass his favorite bakery, which, of course, was Leonard's, okay? And uh, he, he, he would buy a box of malasadas and he would bring it to work and everybody liked him because you know he was the one that he was the guy that brought it and left it on the table by the coffee okay so he realized you know what it's new year's i, I gotta pull down you know so what he did is he decided i gotta drive a different direction so he did he didn't go there on couple avenue anymore he thought i'm gonna go a different way and that worked for a while you know then eventually, you know, he was feeling pretty good about himself. And one morning he woke up and he thought, you know, I'm okay. I'm over this. And he drove by it. And, uh, you know, as he got near, he could start smelling that thing. Got harder. And he prayed. And, by the way, you can pray while you're driving. It's just what Jesus meant when he said, watch and pray. Anyway, so he's, he's, he's praying. And he's saying, Lord, you know, maybe this is a sign from you that, if, if I drive by and there's a parking place, because, you know, there's never, any, there's never any parking at Leonard's anyway, right? So if there's a parking place, then maybe it's a sign from you that it's okay for me to go, you know? So he gets to work, and his good friend, who's a Christian, who's been praying with him, his prayer partner, you know, and he got there, and the box, by the way, wasn't full when he got to work. He gave in, and his friend said to him, what happened, dude? And he said, well, you know, I was driving, told him the whole story. He said, well, no, I was driving, but, you know, I was circling, and I was circling, and on the eighth time, <laughs> you know, as, as noble as our plans are for keeping our resolutions or really any goals that we might set for ourselves, a lot of times it doesn't last long, does it? Why? Because temptation comes along, and we think to ourselves, just this once. And then from there, what happens? Our progress goes the wrong direction. You know, the Bible makes it plain that none of us can avoid temptation. It's a fact. Even Jesus himself was tempted. But he showed in this passage that we're going to study together this morning that even though we can't avoid temptation, we can overcome it. And I want to look at how we can do that together today. Before we get into the passage, though, I want <clears throat> to just do a little, I want to set the table a little bit. I want to talk about, first of all, why do we even get tempted? Why would we even get tempted? Well, and by the way, there's an outline in your bulletin if you haven't begun to fill it out already. I want to encourage you to do that. The first reason we get tempted, in my opinion, is to prove the depth of our relationship with God. In other words, God allows tests into our lives to show us the truth about ourselves. See, it's easy to say that we love and trust God when things are going well, but, you know, do we really? 
You know, whenever you bump a cup, you find out what's inside pretty quickly, don't you? And it's the same thing with us. When we get bumped, when we get pushed, squeezed, whatever the term you want to use, we find out what we're made of. Now, it is true that God knows everything, and he knows everything about us. He isn't surprised when we stumble. But you see, it's not God who needs to know about our condition. He knows our condition. It's we who need to know the truth about ourselves. But there's a second reason that God allows temptations into our life, and that, that's this, is to provide us with an attractive alternative. See, God wants our love for him to be genuine. He wants it to be real. I guess he could have created us like robots uh, and pre-programmed us so that when we came to a point of a decision, that we would automatically choose the right thing. But then the question is, would that really be a genuine form of love? Of course not. We're programmed to do that. See, in order for our love for him to be authentic, God created us with a capacity of choice. See, God will never force us to love him. It's our decision. It has to be a free will decision. But in order for that choice to be meaningful, there has to be an attractive alternative, doesn't there? See, look, if you invited uh, Don and I for dinner tonight and you said, well, listen, we have a choice of uh, options for dinner uh, and let us know because then we'll go out and get the things and then we can prepare them. So the first choice was a steak dinner, okay? And we had this luscious steak dinner and that was choice number one. But choice number two was baby food, okay? Now, you know, this guy, he looks like he wants the steak here, okay? Anyway, the point is, is that's not much of a choice, is it? Okay? But now, on the other hand, if you had a choice to make between, say, steak and sashimi, now that, that is a choice. Danny, I think I just lost all the vegans on that one. Okay. Anyway, the point is, is that temptation always involves an attractive alternative. Now, it's important to note here, if we do sin, you know why we sin? Because we choose to. Listen to what James says in uh, his epistle. He says this, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. See, we're prone to blame other people for our choices, aren't we? For our sins. This is what happened in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden. Serpent came. Remember the forbidden fruit? And God came and he said, you know, what happened here? And Adam said, well, it's her fault. It's she's the one who made me do it. And what did Eve say? It's the serpent's fault. She was blaming. Sometimes we blame other people for our problems. Sometimes we blame Satan. We say, well, 
the devil made me do it. Okay? Just, I just couldn't help myself. And this is inferred here in the Bible in many places. Sometimes we really, what we're really doing is we're blaming God. You know how we do that? We do that by saying, well, it's the way you made me, God. It's my, and I'll use myself as an illustration, it's just my Irish, English, German background. You see, that's the way you made me. And therefore, because you made me that way, I have these certain tendencies and so forth. So really, God, if I get tempted and I sin, it's your fault. <clears throat> Wrong answer. But James makes it clear. He makes it clear to us that while God, it's true, God allows temptations and Satan engineers temptations for us, I'm the one who ultimately decides whether or not I'm going to give in to that evil desire and sin. And you know, whenever I do, whenever I give in and I take that bait, it robs me of the life that God really wants to give me, that abundant life. But here's the good news. There is a way out. <laughs> there is. Look at what Paul the Apostle said in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So with that as a background, the question then becomes, well, how did Jesus overcome temptation? And I want to look at this passage and study how Jesus did it, because as 1 Peter chapter 2 says, he left us an example so that we could follow in his steps. When Satan came to Jesus, he tempted him basically in three areas, the same basic three areas where we get tempted. And here's, here's what they are. It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Uh, this is summarized really well by the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. Look at Look at it with me. Do not love the world, he says, or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires are passing away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So how did Jesus do it? How did he overcome temptation and really how can we overcome temptation well here's here's the first point i'd like to make if you want to overcome temptation you need to respond to desires in godly ways let's look at this passage in luke together jesus full of the holy spirit returned from the jordan and was led by the spirit in the desert where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil he ate nothing during those days and at the end of them he was hungry the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. So this first temptation came in the area of the lust of the flesh. 
See, the Bible tells us that Jesus had been fasting for 40 days. Have you ever fasted before? Uh, if you have, I, I, I haven't done it, frankly, recently, but I remember once I did it for quite some time, not 40 days, but I did it for a while, and I remember after about three days, you're not really hungry that much. In fact, uh, later I've talked to doctors, and they've explained, yeah, that's true up until the point when you start getting hungry again. And generally speaking, about 40 days is that time period. And when you start getting hungry at that point, you are literally starving to death. So Jesus was in legitimate, in a legitimate, a place where he's legitimate need for food. Now, had the Bible ever said that it was wrong for him or us to eat? Of course not. In fact, not long after this scene that we're looking at in Luke's gospel, Jesus took five loaves of bread and two fish and fed 5,000 people. So then the question then becomes, well, why would that have been a sin for Jesus to turn that stone into bread if he was legitimately hungry? Here's why. Because it would have been an attempt to fulfill a God-given desire in an ungodly manner. There's nothing wrong with the desires that we all have as people. God created us with the drives, the desires that we have inside. The, the basic drives we have for air, for thirst, for hunger. Even the sexual drive is a drive that God has given to us. And those drives in and of themselves are fine. Why? Because they're for our preservation. But here's the thing. While God created those desires, he also created the environment, the proper environment, the proper manner in which those desires should be fulfilled. And here's what Satan, our enemy, tries to do. He tries to take advantage of us, especially when we're weak, by tempting us to satisfy the drives, the desires that we have on the inside but in ways that depart from God's plan. And you know, whenever we give in to Satan's temptations and try to fulfill a legitimate, God-given desire in an illegitimate way, we sin. See, the fact is, our enemy, the devil, is a pervert. Meaning, he cannot create anything on his own. Only God can, is, is the creator. Satan, what he does is he takes what God has created and attempts to twist it, to pervert it, to get us off the rails and heading in the wrong direction. So when we're tempted, the question then is, okay, well, what is this, what desire, what drive do I have on the inside here? What is it? And we need to find out. How would God want me to fulfill that particular drive or desire? That's what it means when, when I say we need to respond to these desires in godly ways. Have you ever tried to take a bone away from a dog? <laughs> if you have, you know that's, that's usually a pretty good way to get bit, isn't it? <laughs> but really, there's a simple way to do that. Most of us, if you have a dog, you know how it goes, right? You need to try to grab that bone. No, you just take a piece of meat 
and you set it next to that dog, like in this next picture, okay? And what will that dog do with that bone? See, th this is the thing where we mix it up. We spend so much time thinking, oh, I, I sh you know, I shouldn't go for that bad thing, when what we should really be focusing on is, what is the good thing that God has for me? See, when Jesus said to the enemy, man does not live on bread alone, what was he saying? He was saying, look, don't settle for a bone when God has a steak waiting for you. Do you get what I'm saying? The next way that Jesus overcame temptation is this. It's by refusing to compromise with shortcuts. Let's look at this passage in Luke. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So somehow, in an instant, Satan was able to supernaturally transport Jesus into a situation where he was, and, and he was able also to display all the power, all the prestige of every kingdom an empire that had ever existed. Now, can you imagine that just for a second? It's hard to visualize, but if you can just try to imagine what that would have been like. All of the, the wealth and the grandeur uh, from the pharaohs of Egypt to Genghis Khan to all the kings and queens of Europe to the tech billionaires or the, the, the Arab sheikhs with the, they're just more money they can possibly spend. Can you imagine that? And he said, you can have this. Just, just bow down and worship me. What made this temptation, in my opinion, particularly tricky is the fact that Jesus knew that he was destined to rule the world. This is what he told Pontius Pilate near the end of his life. Pontius said, are, are you a king? And he said, yes, I am. Yet once again, what made this wrong for Jesus is that this temptation like most every other temptation, suggested that he could achieve his goals without doing it God's way. How many of you know that Satan still offers shortcuts to us today through compromises? He'll use all kinds of means, all kinds of methods to lure us into thinking that we can experience the happiness and fulfillment that we want to but without all the hassle of trying to be a Christian at the same time. But here's the thing. Don't buy the lie. Don't do that. The Bible says that Satan is a liar, and he's very, very good at it. He's had centuries of practice. In fact, Jesus said of Satan in John 8, verse 44, I like the living Bible, how it phrases it. It says, when, when Satan lies, he speaks his native language. He'll tempt you with shortcuts, with compromises, 
But you know what? Compromises are never fulfilling. They leave you with regret. It's a known fact that when people were captured, American soldiers were captured and taken as prisoners of war in various wars, and this could be as recent as Afghanistan or the Gulf War or going back to Vietnam, uh, the Korean War, even World War II. It's a well-known fact. It's been studied time and time again that the men who decided to compromise with their captors, who asked them to divulge information, sensitive information to them, it's a well-known fact that, number one, most of these men were not, or excuse me, ended up being terribly depressed. Some of them actually gave up hope and literally just died in their cells. Do you know why? Because their captors had lied to them. And when they realized that they had been duped, it was so depressing that many of them gave up hope altogether. And that's, that's, that's the thing that I think Jesus' example and what I'm trying to challenge you to today is, again, don't, don't compromise. It leads to regret. And most of us don't want that. We don't like that. We don't like to have to look back and think, why did I say that? Why did I do that? Compromise looks good on the surface, but it doesn't end up good. This is why we need to make sure that we avoid taking shortcuts. Well, the last way that we can overcome temptation is this, and that is to resist the devil with God's word. Let's look at this last section in Luke chapter 4. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So while the first temptation was the lust of the flesh, the second was the lust of the eyes, this one had to do with the pride of life. So again, somehow Satan was able to supernaturally transport Jesus to the top of the temple, this high vantage point, one of the highest, probably the highest in Jerusalem at that point. But this time he didn't show him the kingdoms of the world. He said, why don't you go ahead and jump off? Why did he do that? He was saying in so many words, hey, look, What's the harm in uh, 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 giving God a little, a little marketing help, a little, little PR here? If you jump off, just, just think about all those skeptics that are out there who really don't believe that you are the Messiah. If you do some kind of a display like that and these angels come down and swoop and bring you in, don't you think they'll just automatically bow down to you? Jesus said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Why did Jesus say that? Because he knew that using his God-given gifts to basically show off is, in the end, the core of the same problem that caused Satan himself to fall, and that was pride. 
You know, one of Satan's most effective tactics, in particular, for people who are committed Christians, and, and I would add to that Christian leaders, one of his most effective tactics is tempting us by misquoting or misapplying the Word of God. Did you know that the devil knows the Bible? <laughs> he does. And he quoted Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. Except one thing. He left out a part. Did you know that? Well, Jesus did. And because Jesus knew that he had misquoted and misapplied this section of Scripture, he countered him. He was able to counter him with another Bible verse, which put the whole thing in perspective. Listen, if Satan attempted to tempt Jesus by misquoting and misapplying Scripture, if he did that to Jesus, you better believe he's going to do that to you. And this is why it's so important that you study your Bible. And I would add, study it not just alone, but study it with other people as well. Do you ever wonder why we beat that drum all the time about being in an Ohana group, about being part of a church family? Here's one of the key reasons why. Because, see, one of the main reasons that we as Christians succumb to temptation is our lack of ability to properly understand and properly apply the Scripture to our lives. Do you know that church history is rife? It's filled with examples of, virtue, of how ev almost every heresy, every cult, every false teaching that's ever come about has come because someone has picked out an isolated passage out of context without regard for what the rest of the scripture says. And you know, when we do this, we not only deprive ourselves, but we risk grave error because we're, we're exposing ourselves to conclusions that are based on individual cherry-picked passages rather than the context in which they were written. One of the great joys I have is of being a pastor, and, and in particular, having been one, in fact, just this year, in fact, this month, I've celebrated 30 years of full-time ministry, which is exciting. One of the great joys I have is having seen people grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ and seeing the Word of God come alive to them and to see them make progress, genuine impact for the kingdom of God. But one of the flip sides of that, I regret to say, is the amount of people that I know, well-meaning, well-intentioned, zealous Christians that have gone off the rails. You know why? Because they did this very thing. They took a scripture. They listened to some tape in the old days. Today it would be somebody on the internet. You pick your example. They get off the beam. And the sad reality is many of these people who were once very effective for God are out there. And you know attempts made not only by me but other Christian leaders to say, hey, you know, that's interesting. But we need to get back to the main basics of the gospel here. Most of the time, those people would not listen to us. And thus, they became ineffective. You know why? Because most often, this is really how it played out in the end. The bottom line is, they felt they had some kind of deeper knowledge. 
that they were in what could be called, you know, God's Navy SEALs, like we're the, the vanguard, we're out there on the cutting edge, we have this insight. And you know what that smells like to me? Pride. It's tragic. And this is why it's so important to be part of a church, to be part of a small group with people who care for you, with a part of a church that, and by the way, no church is perfect, but I can tell you what, this church here, we are as sincere as we can be about understanding and interpreting and helping to apply the word of God in a clear, honest, sincere way. That's why it's so important. Now, at the end of all this, the Bible says this interesting verse. One of the, or excuse me, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him for an opportune time. In other words, Satan said, I'll be back. And he will be. You know, earlier I asked how you're doing on your New Year's resolutions or goals or faith goals. Call it whatever you want. Some of you are doing well, and, and I am so grateful for that. And I want to encourage you. Keep on, okay? Press on in that. That's awesome. But as Paul the Apostle said in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, if you are doing well, be careful. Take heed when you stand lest you fall. But you know, some of you have come today and you haven't done so well on your New Year's resolutions. In fact, maybe you didn't even make any because you know you've tried that before. You've tried and you know you thought because you failed before you thought, What's the use? I've tried this before. You know, these particular areas, these things in my life, you know. And, and, you know, here's the thing. Maybe you've fallen. Maybe you've come today and you came because you knew you needed God's help. You needed God to step in and make a difference in your life, to do for you what you cannot do for yourselves. Do you know why most people fail when it comes to goals? And by the way, this is just psychology. Most people fail at New Year's resolutions or goal setting. The main reason is that they take on way too much at once or they set the bar so high that when they do fail, they think, why try anymore? There are many good goals that you and I could have. I, I know what I need to keep striving toward, to pressing on for. I don't know your goals, but I'm going to ask the ushers to get ready to bring communion because communion is a perfect time, a perfect time for us to do one thing. And that's what I want to encourage you, just like the psychologist would say. Maybe you failed in a bunch of things. Maybe you're like the guy with the malasadas, okay? All right, man, you know? But I want to encourage you today to just focus on one thing, and that is having a more committed, a more alive relationship with Jesus. And, and what better time than the Lord's Supper for us to remember what he did for us? You know, the Bible has a lot to say about Jesus and how he overcame temptation. But one of the beautiful passages in the book of Hebrews, as it says, is this. Because he suffered when he was tempted, he knows how to help those who also were tempted. That we don't have 
a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses because you know what? He was tempted at every point just like us, yet without sin. As you hold the bread, which represents his body that was broken for us, and the cup of juice, which represents his shed blood, I want you to remember, Jesus died to set you free. And whom the Son sets free, he's free indeed. Please come.